So we lift our voices together, sing our praises to God.
Still life, the same power. 
I see the old has passed away, the new has come. Now I have resurrection power, living on the inside, Jesus, you have given us freedom, no longer bound by sin and darkness, living in the light of your goodness, you have given us freedom. I'm dressing incredible truth, God, that the same power that you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead, that same power is alive in us. You give us victory. You give us freedom. You are always waiting for us to turn to you, to ask you for what we need, because you desire to set us free.
you fight for us. You call to us. You pursue us. Help us to surrender to your overwhelming love. We love you, our God, our Father, our Savior. Amen.
Father, it's an awesome thing to ponder what you have done for us. We pray, Father, that in your grace and mercy, you will open our eyes to not only the greatness of who you are, but the greatness of what you have done and what you are continuing to do and what you've promised to do. We thank you for hearing our prayers as we come today to offer them to you. We thank you that you are at work, that our prayers mean something to you. And so we offer them boldly and confidently in faith because of who you are. Father, as we gather today, we pray for your grace upon all who are struggling with grief or illness, with pain or trouble. We pray for Dick Alderman and his family in their grief. We pray for others who today are feeling loss, grief, pain, sorrow. Your comforting presence be evident in each heart. We pray, Father, that you will heal all of our diseases through the grace and the mercy and the power of who you are. Give hope. Give courage, give healing, give strength to Leonard Watson, and Florence Tuber, and Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, to Tim Nichols, to Bob Brown, to Louise Princell, Hudson Hess, to Nancy Cole, Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Chuck Barrett, to Cheryl O'Brien, and Ben King, Doris Sepian, and Isla Shea to Sheldon Emerson, to Bill Getty, to Ella Woolsey, Mike Raybuck, to Beverett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, and Emily Cricklar, and others who may be on our minds today. May your healing strength be at work in each of them. Father, we thank you for the privilege in our church to, to serve and teach and minister to our children. As we watch them come in this morning and waving palm branches, we realize how blessed we are with all of these children. And we pray for all who work with children throughout this, every Sunday and during the week. Father, we pray not only for the ministry that we have as a church, but other churches as well. And today we pray for the Oromel Church and Pastor Charlie Little. May your rich blessings be upon this gathering of believers as they serve each other and as they serve their community. Father, we pray for our nation. You know the needs of our nation. You know the needs that the leaders of our nation have. We pray that you will help us to be a nation, to be leaders of the nation who care about the most vulnerable to care about those 
who are weak and struggling, to care for those who would be very easy for society to take advantage of and to crush and to ignore. Give the leaders of our nation and give to us a passion for the people who need help the most. We pray, Father, that that you would also help us as a nation, as a world, as people all over the, the world are recovering from disasters and tragedies that seem to be happening multiple times a day. We pray, Father, that particularly in the places where it seems as though violence is rising, that you would bring peace. We pray, Father, for refugees throughout the world. We pray for all who live with the threat of epidemics and disasters and uncertainty about the next meal, the next drink of water, a safe place to sleep for the night. We pray that you would bring an end to to the suffering and the struggle of so many. And Father, make us particularly sensitive to these needs that may not directly affect us, but are important to us because they're important to you. Father, we thank you for your church around the world. As we are planning as a congregation this trip to Puerto Rico to help out with the recovery there, we pray that you will prepare. We pray you'll touch the hearts of of those of us who need to be on this trip and, and need to serve in this way. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters who face great opposition for their faith. Think especially of Pastor Andrew Brunson, who is jailed and awaiting trial in Turkey on false charges. We pray, Father, that, that you, will, you will release him, that you will protect him, that you will help his family to know your grace to them. And Father, while he is in captivity, we pray that you would fill him with such grace that he would minister to those who threaten him and that their hearts might be open to you. Father, we thank you for being present with us. We thank you for calling us to be more than we are. We ask all of this, the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may this week, this holy week, may we engage with Christ who suffers and dies for us. Pray this in his name. Amen. The reading today is from Mark 15, 33 through 39. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. At noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, 
Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please remain standing. I want to just mention a couple of things to you uh, about uh, that are in your bulletin. Um, I know some of you are students and you probably will not be here next weekend, but there are things going on this week and Holy Week. Thursday night's a Monday Thursday service. Everyone's invited to that at 7 o'clock. This is a service of great symbol and uh, powerful thing, symbols of the last night of Jesus' life. Good Friday, we'll have a come and go event here in the sanctuary from 10 to 6. Just reminding us of the cross and various ways in which the cross touches our lives and our world. And we'd love to have you be a part of that. As I said, you can come and go, stay as little as long as you want, anytime between 10 and 6 on Friday. And then notice if you're around next weekend, our service schedule is completely different. We have a baptism service at 745. We have 11 people who are going to be baptized next Sunday morning. And then we have a breakfast after that. Love to have you come to the breakfast. If you, if you can and you want to donate some food, there's an insert in the bulletin about that. And then uh, our combined worship service at 10 o'clock next Sunday. There are other things in the bulletin, in the bulletin as well. There, there's a devotional guide in the back for families and children. Feel free to grab one of those. Uh, before you're seated, let me encourage you to share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning. Maybe introduce yourself to someone you don't know. The, um, the pastor, theologian, church leader of about 50 years ago once said, A.W. Tozer, once said, what I think about God is the most important thing about me. What I think about God is the most important thing about me. Now, I've mentioned that statement before, but I bring it back to our attention this morning because I think it is so powerful and so important and true. I'm convinced that everything about our lives is rooted in our view of God. What we do is rooted in our view of God. What we don't do is rooted in our view of God. How we treat people is rooted in our view of God. What we think about is power and success is rooted in our view of God. 
what it means to be a follower of Jesus is rooted in our view of God. What do we think about the church is rooted in our view of God. Everything about life ultimately comes back to our view of God. Because we are creatures made by God in the image of God, and we are made to be connected to God. And everything about life is eventually rooted in our perspective, our view of God. And the great problem that we have as human beings in this world is that we have a skewed view of God. Our our willingness to to engage so often in sin is rooted in our skewed view of God. Our unwillingness to see God as he is is rooted in our view of God. Everything comes back to our view of God. And I'm convinced that the, the primary purpose of the scriptures is not to teach us, though it does, and that's important, and the primary purpose of the scriptures is not to show us what a moral life looks like, though it does. It's not to, to reveal to us morality in general, though it does. It's not even intended to tell us what the boundaries of life should be, though it does. The primary purpose of the scriptures is to fix and to shape our view of God. Because everything comes back to that. And when John says to us in his gospel that Jesus is the Word, Jesus is the Word made flesh, Jesus is God in flesh, he is telling us that Jesus is the ultimate and final revelation of who God is. And if we want to know what God is like, if we want to know if our view of God is right or wrong, we look at Jesus. From his first coming to his second coming, everything about Jesus' life is a revelation of the nature of God. And of God's nature that desires relationship with us and desires to transform us and desires us to be the people we were created to be, which is often far more than what we are willing, what we usually settle for. And at the center of this revelation of God in Jesus is the cross. With the past few weeks, or the weeks, Sundays of Lent, and this is the sixth Sunday of Lent, we've been looking at shadows of the cross. And how, when the shadow of the cross falls on different people around the cross. And, and quite frankly, when we think of it that way, we see ourselves, if we're honest. We see our hard-heartedness in the religious leaders. We see that in us. We understand Pilate's self-interest, we see that in ourselves. We understand the fear of the disciples about being the people that, that God's calling them to be in difficult circumstances. We get that. We understand that. We understand the idea of, of being willing to pass by people in pain and ignore them. 
And the call of the gospel is to pay attention to them. We even understand to a certain degree the the limitations of the religious structure of Israel and the temple and the curtain and the ways in which it, it blocks our ability to have that intimacy with God. We understand that. And we're talking about all these shadows and we identify them, but there's, there's one more shadow that I want us to think about today. And quite frankly, it really isn't something we identify with. I have a feeling it might be the most important shadow, the most profound shadow. Because the shadow of the cross not only, not only casts itself down on people and places, but it also casts itself up on God. And I believe the shadow of the cross is cast on God and it reveals something about God that we might only see in the cross. If you or I were to write the scriptures on our own and we were to, 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 um, to design uh, some type of, of book that would say what we think is important about God, I suspect most of that book, if not all of that book, would paint God in the most positive light. I mean, that's what we're always trying to do, right? When people question God and and they have accusations against God, what do we do? We start backpedaling and saying, well, it's hard to talk about. Let's talk about the nice things. And that's what surprises me about Scripture because I think the clearest image of God that we have here at the cross are the words of Jesus that he cries out just before he breathes his last breath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those words, the great hero of the faith dies with an accusation against God. Jesus has spent all of his life living in the affirmation of God. In his baptism, he comes up out of the water, even though he doesn't, baptism is for sinners. He's not a sinner, but he, the Spirit leads him to this. He comes up out of the water, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, I am well pleased with him. And throughout Jesus' life, that's the word that the Father keeps saying to him. You're doing well. I'm affirming you. This is great. He keeps, he keeps saying to him these kinds of things. And you get to the end of it in those last, last interactions that Jesus has with his disciples. He says, you know, the Father and I are one. Everything the Father wants, I want. However the Father, whatever the Father says, I do. Whatever the Father, whatever the Father leads me, that's where I go. And you see that throughout Jesus' life. He and the Father are one. They are, they are intimately connected. They have been in eternity. And now, hanging on the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, why have you abandoned me? Why have you neglected me? We all probably at some point have, have felt abandoned. Neglected? It's, it's almost worse than being punished and yelled at. I mean, one of the worst things that can happen to you is that somebody you thought was a close friend won't take your calls anymore. 
it's, you know, we, Royal Family Kids Camp is something that we, you know, we've been supporting for many years. And at this camp for abused and neglected children, they, they encounter all kinds of horrific experiences that these children have been through and are some still going through. And the children that have been abused uh, face such horrific things and they face such a, a long road of recovery. But so do the children who are neglected. To be neglected is to be considered insignificant. It's as if you don't even exist. It makes me think of a game of hide and seek. When all the, all the kids in the neighborhood invite the one child that everybody picks on. Doesn't usually let them play, but this day they've got an idea. They, they invite him to come and to play with them. And, and they say, we're going to play hide and seek. And he's excited about the opportunity to play hide and seek. And they all say, okay, we're all going to go hide. And they all, he runs and hides. And all the rest of them, their plan is they get together and they run down the street. And they leave him by himself. And he just waits and waits and waits. It's hard for me to imagine anything more traumatic for a little child. I mean, it's such a traumatic thing to be treated like that, to be abandoned, to be neglected, to be considered so insignificant. And Jesus from the cross is saying, Father, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? There are some who believe that that God does actually abandon Jesus. That God actually turns his back on Jesus. You sometimes hear it in the songs that we sing. Michael Card is, is one of my favorite uh, Christian artists. I have, I've, been, uh, I've been touched and, and, and moved by his music for probably more than 30 years. I love his, his theological lyrics. I, I love the melodies that he creates. And one of the songs that he, that he sings, it's, he had it out many years that the, the second verse of this says, Throughout your life, you felt the weight of what you'd come to give. To drink for us that crimson cup so we might really live. At last, the time to love and die. The dark appointed day. That one forsaken moment. When your father turned his face away. And there are those who believe that that's exactly what happens when Jesus cries out. But I have a hard time accepting that. Because when you read through the scriptures, one of the most, one of the most common promises of God is I will never leave you nor forsake you. He makes that statement to Jacob in the wilderness. He makes that statement to Moses, to Joshua, to David, to the people of Israel, Dozens of times, the writer of Hebrews brings it back up again. Over and over and over again, the mantra of God to his people is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And even when Israel becomes so, rejects God so completely that he says, I'm done with you, I'm giving up on you. In the very next breath, he says to the prophet Hosea, how can I ever give you up? How can I ever abandon you? I can't. And there are those who say that, no, God does, because he can't look on sin like that. 
Jesus takes upon himself the sins of the world, your sins, my sins, everyone's sins, all of the heinous nature of our sins, the evil of our sins, the filth of our sins. He takes it upon himself and it gets to the point where the holiness of God cannot look at that. Then I think, so how fragile is our God? Is is sin so terrible and God so weak that he can't look on sin? What does it mean then for Jesus to come and to live right in the middle of it? I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I don't think God is abandoning Jesus. I don't think God is turning his back on Jesus. But I do believe that Jesus feels like he's been abandoned by God. Because that's what happens when we sin. Well, no, the feeling if you, have any, if you have any conscience at all about what you do, you know that feeling when you do what you know is wrong and, and, and the shame and the guilt that you feel. And, and the very next thing is to think, God, God is so distant from me. God's not going to care about me anymore. God's going to you know, lower the boom on me. God doesn't, doesn't want me anymore. It is what, it's the words that the evil one whispers in our ears. And it's the feeling we have of guilt and shame that separates us. So what happens with Adam and Eve in the garden? They have this relationship with, with God where they walk together and they share life together. And when they sin and God shows up, he, doesn't, he knows they sinned, but he hasn't abandoned them. He shows up anyway. What do they do? They run and hide. Because now they're afraid. They'd rather run away from God than have God say to them, get away from me. David, when he commits his sin with Bathsheba, feels that. He reads Psalm 51, and he says, Don't take your spirit away from me. Don't abandon me. Don't forsake me. Why does he pray that prayer? Because something in his spirit feels that happening. That's what guilt and shame does to us. That's what Judas feels after he betrays Jesus. He's so filled with remorse, feels so distant from God, feels rejected by God, he takes his own life. It's what Peter feels after he denies Jesus and he goes off and and, and weeps in remorse and guilt and shame. And I am convinced that Peter is thinking to himself, it'll never be the same again. That's what sin does to us. And now Jesus, for the very first time in his life, is feeling that. He's never felt that before. He's never experienced that. He's never experienced guilt. He's never experienced shame. He's never experienced distance from his father. He's never experienced that, that, that sense of, of God doesn't love me anymore. And you think of all the sins of the world upon him. The weight of that. I think sometimes we, we have a, a my picture that when Jesus takes the sins of the world, it's as if he's sort of picking up a big boulder and carrying it. it he's carrying the sins, but they really are disconnected from him. I don't think that's the case. He wouldn't cry out in agony on the cross if that were the case. 
You wouldn't feel shame and guilt if that were the case. You wouldn't feel abandoned if that were the case. When Jesus takes our sin, it, it is infused into him. And he feels it. And even though he's never committed sin, he feels the guilt and the shame of our sin. It's real. The agony of it is real. And all the while, when, as he cries out, all the, all the time, God is silent. You would think that God would come and rescue him. You'd think God would come and say, all right, that's enough. I don't want you to have to go through that. I don't want you to feel that. I don't want you to have to experience that. I'm going to rescue you from that. But if God were to rescue him, if God did not allow Jesus to feel about the sin on him that we feel about the sin in our lives, then he would be shortcutting and short-circuiting his ultimate purposes, which are the redemption of all of creation. You can't shortcut or short-circuit that and bring it to fruition. What struck me as I've been thinking about this is that is that the reason God doesn't stop the guilt and the shame that Jesus feels is the same reason that he doesn't stop the, same, the guilt and the shame that we feel. God has designed this world in such a way that when we reject him, we feel guilt and shame. And that is not a curse. That's the grace of God. John Wesley loved to talk about convicting grace. And for a long time, that struck me as an oxymoron. Conviction and grace. But he said, it's the convicting grace of God that causes us to realize that we need God. If we did not feel shame and guilt for our sin, we would just keep going without a a clue that we were running away from the source of life and blessing and hope. We'd have no idea that what we were doing was so destructive. The guilt and the shame because of our sin is a gift of God. It's the grace of God that, that calls us back to him who has life for us and who offers hope for us and forgiveness for us and grace to us. And if we didn't feel that, we would never turn to God. And if God short-circuits what Jesus feels, then he would short-circuit what we feel. And it would be true separation in the deepest sense of eternity. And so God stands back and lets it happen and lets him feel. And not, he's not hard-hearted about it. I'm convinced God's heart is breaking Everything in his being as a father wants to go and rescue his son and to relieve him of that. And he's not being held back because he, and he wants to go, but he can't. Some, the evil one's got his hands tied behind his back or he's kept from doing it. It's a choice that he makes because he has bigger purposes in mind. And the thing that strikes me about that is that God is willing to risk his reputation for our redemption. God is willing to risk being misunderstood by Jesus and by us for our redemption. 
Because people look, listen to Jesus is, is misunderstanding in this human moment of pain and agony and guilt and shame. And he's crying out, why have you abandoned me? And God is willing to be misunderstood for his greater purposes of your redemption and my redemption and the redemption of the whole world. And quite frankly, there's a part of me that doesn't quite totally understand that. It's so much beyond me. And I think that's the reality of what the shadow of the cross is revealing about God. That God loves us so much, he is willing to risk being misunderstood. He's willing to risk the heartache and the pain of watching his son go through this. He loves us that much. And he wants life for us that much. And he wants hope for us that much. And he wants us to be redeemed that much. Set free that much. Because our God is the ultimate risk-taking, reckless lover. Who will stop at nothing, even his own reputation, to set us free. And to give us life. And as we ponder that, we are faced with a response. What do we do about that? Well, what should our response be to this kind of risk-taking, reckless love? Well, quite frankly, how can it be anything else but full-out allegiance to our God? If God is, loves us like this then how can we not love him back in the same way? Why would we not want to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why would we not want to open our hearts to him with all that we are and everything about us? There's something in the back of our minds that says, well, God loves us, but he doesn't really love us that much. And so we have to be cautious with God. The shadow of the cross is revealing the depth of God's love for us, that he does love us that much. We don't have to be cautious with him. We can respond to his risk-taking, reckless love with our own risk-taking, reckless love. And allegiance. Giving ourselves completely to him and everything that we have and everything that we are. And to be people who are so, so enamored with what God does for us that we become agents of his love for other people. We become his agents of grace and mercy, people who communicate his love to others that they too might experience his reckless, risk-taking grace themselves. This is our God. This is how he loves. How do we respond? Can we give him everything we are? Can we give him all that we desire, all that we are? It 
It's the call of the gospel. It's the grace of God in Christ. Father, thank you for your reckless, risk-taking love for us. Give us the ability to see that more clearly and to pledge our allegiance to you in obedient trust. Through the grace of Christ, we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings.
Chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the ninety-nine. I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. Receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.